God, don't we? Thank you, ladies, for that. It takes a lot of courage to come up and, and sing like that, especially if you don't do it very often or if you've never done it before. So I'm proud of those girls. Good job tonight. Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. And if you were here uh, two weeks ago on a Sunday night, we had this lesson in your bulletin. But I completely lost my voice, and we think that maybe God did that on purpose so that we could hear from Brent Longnecker and Amanda, his wife. So, second Tim, at least that's my theory. Couldn't have had anything to do with sinfulness in my life. Second Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to read three verses here, starting in verse number 20. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctifying, that means set apart, or ready to be used, meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, Charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. I don't know how you are at your house, but when I take a glass out, even if it's been through the dishwasher, or even if my children supposedly have washed it, I always look on the inside, um, just to make sure that it got clean. And I am not too fond of taking cups out of the cupboard and seeing dirt in there and saying, Ah, wonderful, I'd like to drink out of this cup. Right? When you get a dirty cup, how many of you put it back in the sink or wash it or do something with it? How many of you are raring to go on that drinking out of that dirty cup? You just actually, your hobby is to walk around through neighborhoods and find dirty cups to collect to drink out of. Right? Probably not the way that we do it and not the way that God does it either. He's looking for vessels that are set apart ready to be used by Him. Now, when it comes to this idea of boy-girl relationships for young people, um, God has a plan that he has set up. I was reading the other day a story uh, from an ancient queen. Yeah, this is centuries ago, but a popular queen was interviewing applicants to serve on a six-man team. And this team would transport uh, her on a portable throne on long journeys. And as she interviewed each man, the queen asked, here's the question she asked, if you were bearing me along a mountain path, how close would you go to the edge of a cliff with me seated on my throne? And of course, some of the men would answer, your royal highness, I am so strong that I could go within one foot of the edge of the cliff. And others would boast, not only do I have superior strength, but I also have almost perfect balance, and I could go within six inches of the edge. But others would answer, Your Highness, I would go nowhere near the edge of the cliff. 
Why would I want to endanger your valuable life by leading you close to danger? Guess who got the job? The guys who wouldn't go anywhere near the cliff. The wise queen chose men who would keep her far away from the edge of disaster. And we who are parents and we who are leading young people and, and, and mentoring young people and impressing things on young people's lives should take heed to that story as we guide our children through the adolescent years and even before that. Um, we're going to have to answer questions about how close we want our children to walk to the cliff. And uh, we sometimes rely on our own personal experience when it comes to these issues instead of God's Word. Too many Christian families will say, well, this happened in my life when I was dating or when I was growing up, and it didn't seem to bother me too badly, instead of going by the principles of God's Word. If you take your notes out that were provided in your bulletin, does anybody need notes tonight? Anybody need notes as we get started? A few. Thank you, man, for being ready with that. Anybody else need notes? They have plenty to go, plenty to go out if you need some. As we get all the notes out, let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll head right into your notes. Father, bless us now. During this lesson, I pray that it be timely and appropriate for our lives, and that you would help us to be used by you during this time. We ask it in your name. Amen. Um, I'm sure that you know this first one in your notes tonight. But very few people in society are cheering teens on to the high goal of moral purity. Very few people, very few entities, very few influences are cheering teens on to the high goal of moral purity. And the failure to do this, we're going to find out, begins at home. Here's what studies will tell you, studies that have just gone in and studied media. Um, for every 17,000 negative sexual innuendos that are in modern media, whether it's a movie, television show, game, magazine, whatever, there are fewer than 100 positive messages. Okay, do you hear the numbers? For every 17,000 that portray sexuality as, as the wrong thing, there are fewer than 100 that portray it in a positive way. Over 90%, over 90% of modern um, primetime television shows portray marriage as out of the picture, old school, outdated, doesn't work anymore. And instead, they have made adultery, living together, homosexuality, whatever goes as the norm in our society. And so you're not going to get a lot of help from the modern media influences, from uh, the movie makers, and uh, cheering your kids on to moral purity. It really has to start with home. And if it does start at home, we're going to find out tonight that that makes the biggest difference. The, the biggest difference in how your kids grow up and develop in this area depends on the parent and the relationship with God. And it really doesn't have a lot to do with these outside influences, um, if we do this the right way. But here's what happens with a lot of parents. A lot of parents fall under this impression that before we got saved or before we got married, 
or after we got married, or sometime in our lives, um, we had an impurity. We had something that happened in our lives that wasn't right. And so a lot of parents at that time feel like, well, because I didn't do everything right in my dating, or I didn't do everything right before I got married, I don't feel like I should tell my kids to do that. Could I please tell you up front, that is a horrible mistake. It's a horrible mistake. Um, How many of you parents in your life have ever told a lie? Right? How many of you have still taught your kids that they shouldn't lie? Right? How many of you... It happened to me very early. I was four years old at the Benjamin Franklin Drugstore in Springfield, Missouri. I stole a one-cent candy. And my mom saw me eating it in the car. And she took me in to the manager of the Ben Franklin. And I had to tell him what I did. And I'll tell you what, it was frightening for a four-year-old. And I still remember it to this day. Um, But just because I've stolen something or lied sometime in my life does not mean that I can't teach my children the right way. My moral authority is not derived from this frail human flesh. My moral authority is derived from the very Word of God. And what we teach our children and the way we influence our children is not based on our personal experiences. Now, we're going to talk later about how parents better have a pure life. But we don't derive the authority to teach our children from that. And so we say it this way in your notes. Past failures must not prevent us from calling our child to the standard of God's Word. But I caution you at the end of this. However, we must also be careful not to be a stumbling block to our child. And Romans 14 at verse number 13. There are going to be times when your children ask you questions that you don't need to answer. And it's not because you're being dishonest. It's because you don't need to give them a stumbling block. Romans 14 and verse number 13. And this includes our own children. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge us rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. As your children develop, sometimes they'll ask questions of you to justify their own behaviors. And we need to take them back to the standard of God's Word. Um, Sometimes your kids are going to ask you pointed questions about what you've done or what you've experienced in your life. And I'm not telling you, not advocating ever that you be dishonest with them. But I believe there are times when you say, you know what, when you're older, we'll talk more about that. Um, But right now, here's what you need to know. And it's not based on what mom or dad did. It's based on the Word of God. And and so we have to point them back to the Scripture. And I I feel so badly for parents who feel like that they need to tell their 7-year-old that when they were 9, they got drunk. You know, that doesn't make any sense to me. And we have kids in here tonight. So all the kids are going to go home and ask mom and dad now. Mom and dad, did you get drunk when you were 9 years old? Um, You don't have to relive your sin, and tell your, your kids everything that you've done and expose them to that. God has designed a plan in His Word for us to expose them to righteousness. I don't ever think it's beneficial for an authority figure. We all have testimonies of how God has saved us. 
and how God has changed our lives. But I don't ever think that it is beneficial for an authority figure of any type to flaunt the sinfulness that they used to have before they came to Christ. It's never a positive thing. Um, God has worked a miracle of salvation in each of us. And sometimes we act like, boy, this guy's salvation is more miraculous than this guy's because look at what a great sinner he was. He always talks about he did this and he did that. He was there and he went there. And what a miracle God worked in his life. But the kid who grew up in church and got saved at the age of five, no miracle there, right? It's the same exact miracle. Salvation is as miraculous for a five-year-old as it is for a 25-year-old who ruined and wasted his life before he came to Christ. And we need to teach our children the miracles that God has given us that are good, righteous miracles. And we saw that even in the initial passage tonight. Um, Parents, if you are at a place in your life where you feel like you can't even address this issue with your own kids because you have issues or you need healing, there's a book I've recommended in your notes here. A Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. And, and I want you to know about that. You can grab it on Amazon. It may be a blessing to you. The last one down at the bottom here in this top section. Develop a strong set of convictions as a foundation. You have to really develop early on what you believe. And this, this actual lesson, this trap, is, is a two-part session. Next week when we come back in, we're going to address some further things about this. And I'm actually going to take you on a question walkthrough of how to develop some convictions as a young person and as a parent. And so we're going to get very practical on this next week. But you really have to do this. And you don't develop convictions that are your personal opinion as much as you do develop convictions that are from the Word of God. And we hit this as we talk to parents this week, and then next week we're going to talk more to the young people. So for parents, number one, our children need to learn a godly perspective about physical relationships from us. They need to learn about physical relationships from us. You cannot be afraid to address this with your children. And I will tell you next week some of the uh, ages where you should address certain things. And I'll get very specific. I'm going to try not to uh, say words on impressionable minds that, that you're going to have to explain later. But I'm going to get very specific on things you should address when they're six years old, seven years old, nine years old. Please make sure you address these things before they turn 12. Um, before they turn 12, you can have a conversation about this And the boys will laugh, and the girls will squirm around and say, I never want to get married. I don't ever want to be around boys. And I remember when my boys said that they're never going to be interested in girls. Never, ever, ever, ever. Um, And things begin to change. So what you have to do is, is when they're 10 or 11 years old, get these conversations out of the way before the wires in their body get attached and begin to, right? So, so you have to make the, these conversations take place. But parents, it begins with the scriptures. And so let's go to Proverbs 5. If I could point out that if there's anybody who didn't have any moral authority on this issue, it was Solomon. 
right? Can I please tell you this? Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And yet, he speaks in Proverbs 5, and look what he says, My son, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to my understanding. And let's just go through and point out a couple of things he mentions. Verse 3, For the lips of a strange woman drop us on honeycomb. Her mouth is smoother than oil. Uh, He talks about her path of life. If you go down uh, further on in chapter 6, he talks more about flattery and about uh, the wickedness of false relationships. Chapter 7, he gives a parable that is a great parable for you to, to teach your children about a man who was a young man who was void of understanding. And uh, this young man who was void of understanding who was seduced by a woman. And uh, that doesn't just mean that women are seducers. Men can be seducers too. Um, but you go through and you teach these chapters to your children verse by verse, question by question when they're young and help them to understand God's perspective on the topic. And here's the quote I put underneath. You have to get this courage and this gumption in your heart as a parent. You are important enough to me that I will risk talking about this uncomfortable topic. See, parents say, I'm not going to talk about it because it's uncomfortable for me. Well, when your kid's 10, it's not really uncomfortable for them. Right? When your kid's 16 and you've never talked about it before, it is extremely uncomfortable for them. Right? Extremely. So you've got to talk about this early and often, and we're going to talk about how to do that, as I said, some this week, some next week. In a recent study of 13 to 15-year-olds, this is a study of 1,000 kids, fewer than 33% listed their parents as a major influence in their physical relationships. As a major influence. They didn't list them as the number one influence. 33% listed them even as a major influence. 67% their parents weren't even on the list. Not even on the list when it came to physical relationships. And so this is a big thing that you have to grasp and grab hold of. Um, If there's one thing that I could say that modern parents are in, in a general way, modern parents are naive. Modern parents are naive. I would have to say that I sometimes am naive. Um, we got our daughter for Christmas. My wife said, hey, could we get her this little girl magazine? And it talks about doing your hair and all these different things that, that girls like. And we got the first issue. And we opened it up. And my face grew red, and perspiration began to beat out of my body. They're telling these little seven, eight-year-old girls things in these articles that are shaping their minds about looking for a boy who's hot, you know, how to kiss up to your guy. I don't remember what the topics were. It's a magazine for seven and eight-year-olds. My daughter's 11. We were trying to go back on the clock a ways. Um, But... The games that they play, the books that they read at the library, the innocent things that you think you're grabbing for them in child cartoons, movies, music, all of those things, if you're not careful, are a huge influence on your kids. 
Um, even their little DS console that they take around with them, a lot of parents don't know this, that has Wi-Fi on it. It has Wi-Fi on it. Um, there are probably kids in your neighborhood, maybe not your kids, but kids in your neighborhood who know how to use that Wi-Fi for very ungodly purposes. And so you need to know that that's there. You need to know what's out there because being naive is not going to be an excuse when we stand before God. Let's go to number two. This education consists of more than just an explanation of human reproduction. Um, So it's obviously much more than just an explanation of human reproduction. 95% of this is teaching your kids godly character. All right, there's 5% that you're going to have to actually talk about some physical things. But 95% of that is just teaching them godly character, how to treat other people. And by the way, young people, when you get around to thinking about who you want to um, be around in your life or partner up with as a husband or wife, you need to look at things like how the boy treats his mother and how the girl treats her father. And how they treat their brothers and sisters. Because after you get married, guess what's going to happen? Take every negative treatment that they've ever done to anybody, and they will treat you that way. They'll treat you that way. And all the positive treatment that you made your eyes bug out, it usually goes out the window. So you have to look at these things early on. And it starts in the home with talking about the values that you see in other people. The values of how to treat other people and their morality that goes with this. Um, Next one in your notes. The issues we all face in this area have to do with obedience to God and temperance in all areas. If you think back to your text, God (laughs) did not give us excuses. God said, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor. God said, flee also youthful lusts. If it were not possible to do this, God would not have said it. And God put it in there. Follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call out of the Lord out of a pure heart. And so this is an obedience issue. Um, If you allow provision for your flesh, you have now made it into a flesh issue. And I've said this before. If you give your flesh the opportunity to do wrong, it will always do wrong. Your flesh is ungodly. It's carnal. It's at enmity with God. It has nothing of redeeming value in it. And if you give your flesh a free reign to do whatever it wants, it will always, every time, do wrong. And so the obedience issue comes not when you're in the middle of a sin and when you've already given rein to your flesh. The obedience issue comes before that. When you're building the right guardrails for your life. When you're trying to keep things in order in your life. And we're going to be talking about guardrails in a series this fall that I hope will be helpful to you. Number three, we must teach and model true biblical standards of purity and innocence. Yeah, let's look at a couple passages on this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Yeah, let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Okay, 
How many of you, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I know this is God's will for your life, you'd say, boy, that'd be exciting news. I'd love to do God's will for my life. Wouldn't that be neat? If somebody could walk up to you and say, hey, this is God's will for your life, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? Now, what if it were God who did it? What if it were God who came and said, this is my will for your life? Wouldn't you take notice of that? Okay, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Now, the word fornication there means any sexual sin. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. What this means is to keep the vessel clean for God's use. Do not allow the vessel to get dirty so that when God takes it out of the cupboard to use it, he says, ooh, don't want that one, and he throws it back in. Right? That's what this is talking about. Sanctification, verse number five. Not in the lust of a big Bible word here, concupiscence. That is unbridled lust. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. Now look at verse number seven. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So God has given us a calling to holiness, to purity, to sanctification. And sometimes we get into thinking about our goals for our children when it relates to some type of physical relationship. And a lot of times we're teaching him or her that he or she should wait until they're married uh, to begin having sex. That is open for interpretation. That is not God's plan. And we really need to go deeper than that. We really need to model something higher than that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in your notes, I've listed verses 18 through 20. I actually want to go back a little bit before that. Um, we often, if you, if you go to church much at all, you've heard these verses before about your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. But look at the verses that precede those verses that are right before that. Look what he says, verse number 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Now, if you're a child of God, your spirit is joined with the spirit of God. Your spirit is at one with the spirit of God. When it comes to any type of sexual impurity or sexual sin, uh, it's different than any other sin in the Bible. Because a sexual sin is related to the very nature of your spirit. It's related to the connection of your soul. And so we say this in your notes. Underneath number three. Virginity is not a high enough goal. Nor is it the biblical goal. Alright, so the biblical goal is not to be a technical virgin. The biblical goal is purity. The biblical goal, God wants you to be a set-apart, sanctified vessel, ready for the Master's use. He doesn't want any dirt in your cup. And so sometimes we teach our children that, hey, you could progressively 
um, have relationships with people, and we kind of monitor it. You know, oh, we really don't want you to do that, but it's okay if you do that. It's okay if you do that. And uh, we're just creating the potential for disaster in our children's lives. Um, The moment that your child's skin touches the skin of a member of the opposite sex, you're headed downhill, right? Period. Um, If you let your children begin to hold hands, I can guarantee you they will begin kissing. If they begin kissing, I can guarantee you they will begin to touch each other in ways that they should not. And then, if you remember the 1990s, our president modeled something that was very unfortunate for society, that will begin to happen in your children's lives. And that is the same mental soul sin that this is talking about in 1 Corinthians. There is no technical sin when it comes to a sexual sin. If you think it in your mind, it's already done. You remember what Jesus said? If a man looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery. The sexual sin happens in your mind first. And here's what begins to happen. I'll give you a thought process and a word picture here. Um, we have any boys in here that could help me out that are, any boys in here that are 10 years old? 10 years old, 11 years old. You want to help me? Okay, come on up for a minute. Matthew's going to help me. All right. If you're married, you know this. Um, Marriage is hard enough all by itself. All right? Now, I'm not saying that. I have a wonderful marriage and I love my wife. But marriage has issues that come with it that are just there. We're going to represent it through this, right? Your marital issues as you go into marriage... You want to be free from as many burdens as you can because just the marriage itself is going to be a burden to you. But let's add on that when you were 15, your mom and dad said it's okay to start kissing boys or girls. And when you have those relationships with some person that you're not going to be married to, it adds extra baggage to your life. And then when you turn 16... And now you're with a different guy or girl, and you want to go a little bit farther because you showed the first guy or the first girl how much you love them by a physical relationship. And so now you really want to show this next one how much you love them, and so you go a little bit further, and all of a sudden, you got more baggage. And now you're 17, and you're a senior, and you're going steady with somebody. And when you're going steady with somebody, things begin to happen physically in a relationship, and I'm not making this up, over 50% of Christian teens experiment with this. And so it's going to add new baggage to your life. Doing okay? And then you're 18, and mom and dad send you off to college wherever you want to go, or maybe you don't go to college, and you have another relationship. Maybe you start living with somebody, and you get more baggage. How's he doing? Doing all right? And then you're 19 or 20, and you have another relationship. And then you're 21, and you have another relationship. 
And then all of a sudden you're 25 and you decide, you know what? I really love this guy or this girl. Let's get married. Now look what you carry into the marriage. See what you're carrying in? And when you go into this relationship, you're placing this burden on your new spouse. And they're bringing the same burden to the relationship. All right, let's go down. Ready? You ready? Ready? Good job. Give him a hand. He did great. Your fingers okay? Good job. Thank you. You worn out? You need a bottle of water? You good? Need a bottle of water? Okay. All right. You got to work out. You wonder why your marriage is so hard? Tell you why it's so hard. You brought a lot of baggage into the relationship. Every partner you have ever been with in a physical way, you bring extra baggage to the new relationship. You say, Pastor, that means it's impossible. I should never get married. I should never have another relationship. Well, it could be that that's true, and I don't know your situation, but I know this. God can heal wounds. God can heal wounds. But there are always going to be scars. And these are scars. The relationships that you have had physically with another person always bring baggage and leave scars. And, and so as we raise our young people, we have to remember that. And we have to remember that this technical virginity is in no way the goal that we should be shooting for. We say this next. The beautiful rap package of total purity is one of the best gifts you can give your children. But it starts with parenting. It starts with parenting. And a, a lot of teens, um, if they have a good attitude and you talk to them about this very early on, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, they're going to understand why mom and dad are going to make these decisions. But if you wait till they're 16 and dating to talk to them about relationships and about physical things, mom and dad, you lost. You lost. Because they are going to fight you tooth and nail on every point of this decision. And, and so, parents, you have to be aware of this. Um, if, if anything can disqualify a parent from being able to talk to a son or daughter about sex, it is being presently involved in any sexual sin, sexual addiction, an affair, even an affair of the heart where you haven't done anything, but you've thought about it. Those things will disqualify you as a parent from being able to help your child. And, and so if you want purity in your child, you have to start with purity in yourself. And you don't have to go back 30 years and have to have been spotless in your life. We already talked about that. But if you're going to have moral authority today, then you have to have purity today. Um, you can't ask your child to do something you're not willing to do. And uh, parents grieve over their children walking away and becoming impure physically, but a lot of times they're doing the same thing in their own lives. And so we really have to focus in on God's plan here. Next one in your notes. Society is duped into thinking that teens just can't control this. They just can't control it. Well, God says they can if God said that a teenager can be an example of the believers, then I will believe God instead of society. 
Um, God says a teenager can be an example of believers. And it starts with guardrails. Um, you guys know what guardrails are for, right? Um, if there's a big cliff on the edge of a mountain, and you're in an 18-wheeler, how many of you have ever driven an 18-wheeler? The guardrail is so that you can drive straight at the cliff, and it'll stop you, right? No. It's not what the guardrail is for. The guardrail is just an indicator that you're headed off the road. You're headed off the road. And in your home, mom and dad, or mom if you're a single mom, or dad if you're a single dad, you have to create guardrails in your children about this that are going to keep them in the road, that are going to keep them from going over the cliff. Some of the best ones we're going to mention next week are don't ever let them single date. When they single date, they're past the guardrail. And they're out there with the queen walking on the cliff. And when you walk with the queen on the edge of the cliff, you're probably going to fall. But if you're way back, not just off the cliff, but inside the guardrail. Um, when I was growing up, we had some of those guardrails in place. And <laughs> the high school that I went to, there was a six-inch rule. And you could not get within six inches of the opposite sex. And it was verboten. That's a Dutch word. Um, I don't have a pen. Does somebody have a pen? Throw me a pen. So, okay, so they made this rule when I was in high school. This is one of the guardrails. There were teenagers who got demerits. Because sitting in class or in chapel, to break the six-inch rule the spirit of the six-inch rule, but not the letter of the six-inch rule, they would touch each other with the ends of their pen. Right? So they would put a pen in between their legs. And that pen became an electric conduit. <laughs> right? It's like... <laughs> right? Or they would touch the arm with the pen. And just the fact that this pen was attached to another person, the pen's six inches long, but they could touch the other person with the pen... And technically, they kept the rule. But that was one of the guardrails. Now, I always thought that was a dumb guardrail. Here you go. I'll give you your pen back. So, if you ever see two kids sitting in church with a pen stuck between them, you know what's going on with them. They're, they're trying to break the rules, trying to break the guardrails. But there are common sense guardrails that you can have for your young people that we'll talk more about next week. Number four. We need to create a home environment that provides love, security, and physical affection for our children. Um, Dad, even though society is messed up, when your daughter is 13, 14, 15 years old, she still needs hugs from you. She does. She needs physical affection from her dad. Now, society has ruined this for us because there are so many immoral things in our society. But you know, God designed boys to still be loved on by their mothers when they're 14 or 15 years old. Now, my boys sometimes have to give, give mom a kiss goodnight. And uh, I don't know if it's their favorite time of the day, but they still do it, Right? And my daughter, she's 11, she still gives me hugs, and I tuck her in, and we talk. And uh, we're not model parents or perfect parents, but listen to me. Don't shy away from teaching your children how to have pure, physical, godly relationships by being an example to them. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with your kids seeing mom and dad kiss each other once in a while. Um, they're going to go, ooh, right? Um, but you'll find out that the time when they were eight and they were going, ooh, when they're 14 or 15 and they're watching a movie, now they cannot help but smile when Cary Grant kisses the woman on the top of the Empire State Building or whatever. Their eyes light up and they get this huge smile on their face. And kissing is no longer such a ooh thing. It begins to change. That's why we have to deal with these issues early and we have to talk about them early. Um, but we have to create that home environment. And then this last one, how teens feel about themselves starts in their relationship with God. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago in a message. Self-esteem is a term created by humanism. Um, it's a term that's created by a godless culture. And we talk about how children, if they just had enough self-esteem, that they would have security, right? But we find the opposite of that to be true. Who are some of the most insecure people on the planet? Some of the highest rated millionaires, some of the biggest box office stars, some of the greatest singers are the most insecure people on the planet. You know why? Self-esteem does not give you security. The only security for a soul is in Jesus Christ. And if you get that security in your child's heart and life, then you can build these walls of protection, these boundaries that will help them in a godly way. Uh, I want to give you one other example here before we close. And uh, see if this works. Brother James gave me three. Could you give me three just in case? My wife gave me needles, a needle. I'm deathly afraid of needles. We'll see how this goes. All right, parent, let me ask you this question. Here is your child's purity. Every ounce of it. Every ounce of the purity that God has given to your child that they're born with in a physical way. How much of this do you want to keep for your child? Right? All of it, right? It's the natural answer. But... When your kid's 13 and they want to go to a dance with a friend or they want to just have a little first kiss and, and wouldn't it be a neat thing if they got to have a first kiss? What happens is this is so scary. What happens is there's just a little first kiss, right? And what happens is purity begins to leak. Now, they're only 13 years old, but purity's already leaking. It's already going out. And what if, what if the young man or the young woman says to you, you know, it's not a big deal. You'll never miss it. Let's just do this. And you just want just another little droplet of your purity. Oh! Now... Could I tell you this? That's exactly how purity gets lost. Because somebody wants just another little drop. It's okay. You've got a whole balloon full of it. You can afford to lose a little. And so you give up just a little bit. And then you date another guy or another girl. 
And I just want a little more. This is, by the way, a new balloon. I'm sure you guys noticed that. And then just a little bit more. I, I wanted to see if I could do the whole. See that? And now you're leaking purity all over. And then mom and dad let you have a cell phone, and you begin to look at things on your cell phone you shouldn't because mom and dad aren't watching what you're doing. Or you have a computer at your house, and mom and dad are not watching what you're doing there. Or maybe mom and dad are doing things they shouldn't do on there. And so now you've got this, it's going all out over the place. And uh, how much of this do you want to preserve? That's the question. Because every time one of those things happens, there's the potential for that. See, every time your young person is with a member of the opposite sex and the guardrails are not in place and they're not living a pure life, there's the potential for this. And then, as soon as that happens, and I know there's adults out here as we speak from knowing experience of how life happens, people walk into relationships with so much baggage that they cannot possibly give their spouse what their spouse needs. And a lot of times, their marriage is over before it even starts. And then they think, you know what, now I know how I messed up. And so I'm going to get married again. And now they walk into the second marriage with just as many bricks as they had the first time. The guy or girl they married wasn't necessarily the problem. The problem is internal. And it all starts with a pure perspective on the vessel. And so I really want you to think about the vessel this week. And think about how you want your son or your daughter to stand at a marriage altar with an unpunctured balloon. This is the greatest gift you could give to your kids. It really is. When they walk to that altar like this, they've never experienced the things that they're about to experience with the person they will spend the rest of their life with. Do you know that people who walk to the altar this way have a significantly higher rate of staying married? Mary. Significantly higher. Like a lot higher. But people who punctured the balloon early have a lot of issues, have a lot of problems. And so that example is for parents, but, but teens, I hope you'll look at it too and see it for what it is. So let's keep this one intact. All right, I'm not going to throw it at anybody. Keep it intact here tonight. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in the closing word of prayer. Great to see everybody out tonight. Sure do, sure do love you all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We pray that we would learn lessons that would be worthy of you and of you wanting to call us vessels of honor. Lord, there are so many things in our heart that are impure. 